Hi, I'm Tim. Hi, I'm Sam. Welcome to the first episode of the Classical Music Pod. We've got news and reviews from around the classical world. Plus a sword-fighting handle. David Cameron in fugal form. And our new favourite operatic Chinese reality TV show. Tim, Hamburg State Opera's new production of Verdi's Nabucco may well be the most politicised production in 2019. Okay, tell me why. The chorus is going to include refugees who've been invited to come and take part, which is a fantastic way of telling a story about exiles. Who better to tell that narrative? People who really have been through that. Have lived it, yeah. That is good news. There's some bad news to it as well which is that the director, Kirill Sabrenikov, sorry if I'm saying that wrong, is under house arrest and in Russia for the next 18 months, mm. uh, sentenced to f- because of fraud. Is that, is that really what he did, or is he just not... Is just Putin just uh, not like he's him? He's been criticising Putin. Right, OK. Um, <laughs> so we'll leave that to everybody's own discretion <laughs> as to what may have actually happened. Well, um, that, that ties in quite nicely as a new story with a 14-year-old boy from Aleppo, who, well, refugee... Who's living in Sydney now, but he, his, him and his family fled Aleppo at the start of the Civil War. And one of the few things he was able to take with him was his violin. And he's just been offered a place in the Sydney Youth Orchestra, which is a very prestigious youth orchestra. Fantastic. Yeah. So that's what great news. A bit of bad news, as far as I'm concerned, is that Glenn Gould died in 1982. Uh, which I grant you may not at first glance appear to be news, but he's going back on the road as a hologram. That's <laughs> like... Like the Doctor from Star Trek. Uh, if you tell, yeah. <laughs> we won't mention it. We'll cut that out. We'll cut that out. We'll cut that out. <laughs> won't talk about that. I'm a doctor, not a performer. I don't have time for such nonsense. You might have seen the sort of Frank Sinatra and they do it with Tupac as well, it, yeah. yeah. Um, so Illusion are a company who are have been granted the right to work with Glenn Gould's back catalogue. And they're announcing dates for late 2019. So how's this going to work? They're, they're going to have a plonker hologram of Glenn Gold sitting on a piano. In front of a symphony orchestra. S- singing along to his uh, piano playing. I've always hated this hologram thing because it seems to totally misunderstand the nature of making live music is that you make it with somebody mm. who reacts to what you do. And it doesn't matter if you're the 30 second second violin. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're the concerto soloist. If you do something, it will have an influence on the performance. Yeah. There's no way that you can influence a hologram. It's a pre-recorded track. Hopefully, it's just a gimmick to sell some tickets and that the finances gets used on some genuine experimentation. Yeah. Um, and But this doesn't count as that, I don't yeah, think. The bad thing is, I suppose, you're, you're stopping somebody else from doing that solo. <laughs> yeah, someone who's right. alive and someone who's been practising really hard. Yeah, and could contribute something new. Um, that's a good point. Bark track. They've released their statistics. They have. So for those who didn't know, Bucktrack is the most comprehensive listing site for classical concerts across the world. And they released their 2018 statistics and it shows some really interesting patterns. So, for example, the top 10 composers that were performed across the world or performed in concerts that were listed on their website, Beethoven, Mozart, Bernstein number three because of his centennial year. Yeah, got a boost. Bach, Brahms and Schubert. And that strikes me as obvious, 
conservative and a little bit depressing, I think. Yeah, it's giving audiences what they already know they want. Exactly. I don't think it's going to promote or encourage originality in programming. Yeah, maybe a product of the fact that orchestras are worried about their funding. They've got to make sure that they break even putting on concerts that people... Uh, will go to to is a factor right and that must be true of the opera house as well right yeah so that was the other interesting stat every year one third of all opera performed is by either Verdi Puccini or Mozart that is um, a bit on the nose isn't it it is good news for the UK that we are performing way more pieces by uh, women composers than our French and German colleagues they're at five percent whereas the uk is at 17 percent. obviously that's not 50 percent, but we're leading the way as far as this part of europe goes sweden though are absolutely kicking everybody's ass they're on 37 percent. yeah so well incredible. out in front um we're going to talk a bit later about florence price the american composer but uh, work like hers breaking into the canon is going to have to do quite a lot of work to get into f- played in france and germany some more good news mexican conductor alondra de la para as having a documentary being made about her, filming mm. her conducting over 14 months across three continents. And she spoke to a journalist about the film that's being made, and she said, yes, it's brilliant, it's a really good reflection of my work, but what's really frustrating is journalists who keep asking me about whether musicians feel they're distracted by my beauty and uh. whether it's hard looking after children as a conductor and travelling so much, and to which she replies, well, you wouldn't ask that about Pave Yavi, and Pave Yavi is quite capable of looking after his children as well. Yeah, and he's a handsome man. He looks quite a lot like me. Um, hands- you know, not a lot on top. Um, not a lot on top. He's also just got a really good Instagram presence. I don't know if that's something that you're following. I'll, I'll work on that. I'll work on that. I'm a doctor, not a performer. I don't have time for such nonsense. Found. What's been Found. Two ten thousand euro pianos. They were being smuggled across the German-Swiss border at Rheinheim. Uh, so, if those might be your pianos, please do get in touch with the relevant authorities. Mm. And our final bit of news today: if you're interested in Chinese opera reality TV shows, we've got just the thing for you. Yep, Super Vocal, since going on air on November the second, has become the fifth most watched reality TV show in China. 36 singers aged between 18 and 38 were selected to take part and six singers will be announced as the winner, the collective winners. That's quite nice, six winners. Generous. You get a whole cast in the final episode, which is going to air very shortly. You can can actually catch up with all of the previous episodes on YouTube. I have been watching some of it and it's great fun. It's sort of a mix of opera singing and musical singing, but there are some really good singers on it. Fantastic. It's great fun. Have you seen The Favourite yet? No, I haven't. I really want to. I went last week with Nurse Betty. It's very, very good. Um, It's all about Queen Anne and basically that she's got gout uh, and has a love triangle. It's got wonderful Rachel Weisz in, hasn't it? It has. And wonderful Emma Stone. Uh, Well, I've been inspired by it. Well, and obviously lovely uh, Olivia Colman. She's so good. She's so good. Anyway, inspired by this, I've analysed Eternal Light which is from the birthday ode for Queen Anne, as in Queen Anne of the Favourite, see? It was written in 1713 by Handel, and I was looking for ways I could liken it to the love triangle in the film, which I sort of... Uh, was it, to do that? Yeah, see? I did end up with some very light Brexit satire, though. Oh, well, 
It's a silver lining to everything. Yeah. Basically, it's an aria for strings, trumpet and singer, originally a tenor, often an alto, and now famously a soprano, as when it was performed with Meghan Markle walking down the aisle Mm. at the royal wedding. Yes. It sounds a bit like this. That performance was by countertenor Bradley Sharp, trumpeter Theo Van Dyke, and the Norfolk Festival Chamber Choir and Orchestra under Christopher Jackson. That Handel was writing royal commissions like that only a year or so since he moved to London from Germany via Italy is a little bit unusual, right? So that's the first thing to say. John Eccles, not of the cakes, was master of the Queen's music at the time and would certainly have felt overlooked. So there's a little bit of politics going on in this. And hence, the, we can do the satire later. Right, OK. The libretto is by a poet called Ambrose Phillips, who I'd never heard of. It's a nice name. Lovely name. He seems to have mostly written odes to children of the nobility and is mostly dross, in my experience and personal humble opinion. But criticism of his style led to the phrase namby-pamby. That's where it was first used. Really? Someone saying Ambrose Phillips writes namby-pamby poetry uh, led to that. So there you go. That's a good fact. Not many people know that. That first phrase from the singer requires absolutely heroic breath control, and most performers take a breath in the middle of it. Why is it so long? I hear you cry. Well, it's, it's that word painting idea. It's on the word eternal. It sounds like this. performance was from soprano Antonia Dunkio, Edmund Andla Boric on organ and Igor Murnyavcic on trumpet and I am so sorry about the pronunciation once again. There are a couple of other moments where he's quite literal when the singer says to add it's the solo voice alone followed by the strings being added. Now, the trumpet has to be that high due to physics. A trumpet without valves uh, would only be able to play those kind of melodic shapes quite that high in the register where the harmonics are closer together. When performed with an alto or a tenor, as it was originally, the duet between the voice and trumpet occurs at this huge octave and a fourth distance. It's partially why it works maybe better with the soprano. The canon becomes a bit more intimate. rather than this.
So why this huge disparity between the lower voice and the high trumpet? I think it has something to do with the political situation. You've got the men of the Chapel Royal exerting an enormous amount of influence in the musical world of London during this time and under Queen Anne, of course, singing to her pretty much every day. And this nativist faction feel threatened by Europe. The incoming Italian opera stars, sopranos, are causing this sort of dangerous foreign element. They're fearful. They don't like it at all. And so they have Handel in a bind. If he wants to gain employ with them and become a star of the British musical scene, then he must appease them. It's a little bit like David Cameron in 2015. Right. Cheekily, Handel combines the two traditions, Italian operatic and that of the British chapel, Purcell, Blow, etc. He uses the Queen's favourite singer from the Chapel Royal, tenor John Elford, and shows off his unique breath control as we heard in that first phrase. But he actually models the melody and that slow, sustained string playing on a work by Giovanni Bautista Draghi, who you may have guessed is Italian. <laughs> uh, his song for St. Cecilia's Day, written in 1687, sounds like this. So my absolutely shoehorned way of thinking about this as a love triangle is that you've got a German influenced by Italians in Britain, these three musical styles combining to create something truly beautiful. Composer Fact File George Frederick Handel Born Halle, Germany, 1685 The same year as Bach and Domenico Scarlatti The young Handel had to sneak to the attic to play a hidden clavichord His barber-surgeon father didn't approve of music Fought a duel with fellow composer and best friend Johann Matheson, aged just 19 A button on his tunic deflected a mortal blow Moved to England in 1712 where he was offered a salary of £200 by Queen Anne. Wrote the Messiah in 24 days. That equates to 15 notes per minute. Once threw a kettle drum at a conductor after a prankster had snuck in and detuned all of his orchestra's instruments. Died a bachelor at 79 and donated the Messiah to Great Ormond Street Hospital. 3,000 people attended his state funeral. Beethoven called him... The master of us all. If he had lived 250 years later, Jimi Hendrix would have been his neighbour. When Gluck asked him for an opinion on his opera, La Caduta dei Giganti, Handel said, You have taken too much trouble. What the English like is something they can beat time to. Something that hits them straight on the drum of the ear. With you. 
Tim, as our roving reporter, what have you been to see this week? I've been to see Alicia Silverstein, who is an American violinist, and she was playing a programme as part of the Baroque at the Edge Festival for solo violin at mm-hmm. St. James's Clerkenwell. The programme is called The Dreams and the Fables I Fashion, and it's been put together to showcase the affinities between the Baroque and the contemporary Both the Baroque eras. and the Edge. The Baroque and the oh, Edge. I see what exactly. she's done there. She opened with Bach's Sonata No. 1 in G minor, G minor, Bieber's Pascalia, Garden Angel, and then zoomed ahead a few hundred years <laughs> and did Salvatore Cirino's Caprice No. 2, Italian composer, then back to the Baroque, Montanari's Giga Senza Basso from the Dresden Sonata, then back again to contemporary and we had Berio's sequenza number eight and then we finished off with some more Bach. Just to note that that program is available as a CD. She's done that, recorded it as a CD. Yeah, she's recorded the whole thing as a CD. In terms of the the Baroque pieces that she played, Mm -hmm. I don't think that they were her strength. I think her strength lied in the contemporary music that she played. But let's just talk about the Baroque. The Bieber was the most exciting. It's hypnotic piece that it's a Pascalia, so it's got a the same baseline although it's not restricted to the bass but repeated over and over and over again and it's actually the same chord sequence that Andrew Lloyd Webber uses in Gethsemane from Jesus Christ Superstar. Will it come up on my Spotify suggested listening if I try I don't one think to the it other? will but it, right. it's a shame that <laughs> the algorithm it's taking over. Yeah. Actually that, that's Shostakovich's one of his favourite musicals. Is it Jesus not? Christ Superstar. Yeah. I think he went to it and thought it was the best thing of all time. It was the Amazing. perfect union I love that. of it's... music and, and stage drama. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure that's quite true but it is a great piece. He said it. Not many people know that. So it's this descending minor chord sequence from mm. tonic to dominant da 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 da, da and that goes throughout the whole piece mm. a lot of times up in different octaves and different registers of the violin and it's incredibly hypnotic and here's an extract of that piece from the cd that she's released on rubicon and thank you to rubicon for letting us use this clip She played it with with such precision and yet there was a real fluidity to her playing and it just yeah. felt incredibly natural to listen to and to watch. And she was hypnotic to watch. But what, for me, was the highlight of the evening was the piece by Salvatore Sierino. And I'm not sure I'm saying his name. I haven't heard of him before. I hadn't heard of him either. So he's an Italian contemporary composer. And yeah. he's, it's interesting, he's, he's self-taught. He's primarily self-taught. And this particular piece was written in 1976. It's his Caprice Number no. 2. Mm-hmm. And what I really liked about this piece of music is that it, he hadn't employed extended techniques to decorate this piece of music. Yeah. The extended techniques he used in tandem formed the core of why it was written. And the, the main theme of the piece is a double-stopped artificial harmonic where one of the notes in that two-note chord mm-hmm. is having a tremolo at all times. Wow, sounds absolutely so fiendish. It's really, really difficult. The harmonics, when they're played well, and in this amazing acoustic, where St. James and the St. James had this incredible acoustic. I hadn't been mm. to a church in London with an acoustic that supported the programme so well yeah. um, before. Because of the acoustic and the harmonics and the overtones that come off of these harmonics, it felt like these waves sweeping over you almost like a, a breeze or, of, or a stroke of wind chimes and it, yeah. was, it was enchanting 
That particular performance was by the wonderful Dutch violinist Jelant Sejeri. I apologise if I've mispronounced your name there, but you can check out her website in the description below. And if you'd like to see how it's notated, there's another link in the description where you can check out a preview of the score. Terrific. So Luciano Berre was the other contemporary piece. that Another was, Italian. Another Italian. And this piece was actually just written the year after Cyrano's Caprice Number no. 2. So this is oh. number 8 of his 14 sequences, which are interesting. They're, they're written between 1958 and 2002, and Berre died in 2003. They're kind of like compositional love letters from Berio to the repertoires and the possibilities of each instrument that they're written for. So each one is a different It's instrument. a different instrument each time, yeah. And, and it, they, they try to reflect the virtuosic traditions of each instrument, but through a wildly contemporary prism. It really hits you right in the face. So the opening note of the, the sequenza for violin, these really violent, powerful mm. chords in the violin, and she, Alicia Silverstein, she played them with such ferocity. Yeah. And you could see everyone in the audience just sit right up and go, right, okay, right, she means business. And as in Bach's D minor Chacon, which she also played, she achieved in a very different way this effect that you're hearing an ensemble of violinists rather okay. than a single soloist. And I think that's in part because it's so well written for the violin. I think that's credit mm. due to Beria, but also due to her to, to really express that. I suppose the danger with that kind of repertoire is always that it's it becomes sound effects music, yeah. right? And it's just moment to moment. So anything that reflects a bigger structure or implies connection between those two things must be a, a credit to both performer and composer. Absolutely. Next up, we've got the Fort Smith Symphony playing Florence Price's Symphonies Number no. 1 and 4. It's out on Naxos at the moment. And thank you to Naxos for letting us use this short clip. That was music by Florence Price, who's an amazing historical figure whose life is well worth a whole separate segment of your time. And in fact, we've got a link to Tim's blog about her use of Negro spirituals in the description of this pod. But amongst other things, Florence Price was the first black woman to have her work performed by a professional orchestra when the Chicago Symphony Orchestra played her first symphony in 1933. Our CD review this week is of the new disc in Naxos's American Classics series, Symphonies number no. one and four, and they're performed by the Fort Smith Symphony Orchestra with conductor John Jetta. This is the start of what will be the first recording of her complete symphonies. So, what's the music actually like? <laughs> so, uh, Price is an unknown quantity to most of us, I think, and she's a melodic symphonist, very much in the tradition of Vorjak, Tchaikovsky, Mozart, more so than the sort of Haydn, Beethoven, Brahmsy working stuff out school. Mm-hmm. Throughout the two symphonies, we get alterations of harmonization and orchestration really providing the motor a little bit more than thematic development i think right, okay the first movement of the first symphony really does feel like a spare one from vorjak's new world mm. it's cut from exactly the same cloth i don't mean that as a negative at all it's uh, totally of a piece with that enormously popular and loved work yeah 
it just it it feels so similar in its use of song-like structures, the kind of pentatonic melodies that it's making use of, the Negro spiritual reference, of course, as well. So all of those stylistic points are real touchstones. I think that what she does that's a little bit different from Vorjak is where she is most interesting as a composer, is you get these luxurious rhapsodic moments, and they show her at her best. I think mm. they're just little filler transition section or something. And that's something quite different from her forebears. The two outstanding movements on the disc for me are the third movements of both symphonies. They're something I hadn't heard before. Rather than a minuet trio or a scherzo, which is typical of a classical symphony, Price inserts a dance that she learnt growing up as an African-American. It involves a fair bit of body percussion and these really syncopated dance moves. So we get quite a lot of that in there. She really gives the percussion section a license to roam around. They Mm. have a jolly old time, including Swanee Whistle, which I think is the first time I've heard that in a symphony. yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. In the fourth symphony, the juba is actually even more rhythmically complex, and the tonal shape and stuff just really elevates it. The syncopation's thrown around miles, and you'd have to be a very, very good dancer to stay on your feet during Mm. that one, I think. The framing movements, particularly the fourth movements in both symphonies, feel a little bit less inspired, I think it's fair to say. They just definitely happen. You know, they are symphonic yeah. movements using song-like structures, and it's great, but they Nothing are less outstanding. On your... No, I didn't come away with those ones having made a, a powerful impression on me. And how did the Fort Smith Symphony get on? Because I haven't heard anything from them before. No, neither had I. It's really nice that they're the ones making the recording, they're from Arkansas, and so was Price. So there's a bit of local connection there. They really feel an ownership of this music, and that's a great sign. I would say that they mustn't be judged too harshly because there are other recordings to go and lean on. You know, they're not playing into a canon here. They are breaking new ground, mm. and that's fantastic. But That's brilliant. Yeah, there isn't a style to just uh, tap into. Mm. They've had to really go and forge that themselves, and they do a, a very good job. I would say that in the slower movements and in those rhapsodic sections I mentioned earlier, they, to me it feels like the music is crying out for slightly more space, just that right. a really classy orchestra would dwell there and then pick up again. And they just, it, it's a little bit played through. Rigid? Or... Uh, not quite rigid, but just um, it hasn't quite got that extent of flexibility. Right. You know, they're flexing, great, but you know, can they... You know, get their whole palm underneath. You their just foot. want to push it. A li- you want to hear it pushed a little bit more, a little yeah. bit more dangerously. Exactly. They taking that risk that a really top orchestra can. Yeah. But the Fort Smith and, and John Jay to do a, a good good job here. The ensemble is very tight and the sound is very consistent all the way through the disc, um, which I think is quite important. And there's only the odd cue really that they're not right from that top rank. You know, only occasionally with a brass or a wind crescendo do you hear the tuning wobble or something, you know, a little a, th- a thing mm. like that. The string sounds good, but part of me was wondering, you know, what would the CBSO under rattle sound like? You know, that fizzy light kind of sound would suit this music so well. Or uh, someone like Ivan Fisher in the Budapest uh, Festival Orchestra yeah. would sound amazing, you know, that sort of weighty Vorjak that they do. Mm. Um, you know, with that muscularity being applied to this uh, work. And I think I'd love to hear those those recordings further down the, the road. I, basically coming away from this disc, felt like it's a really important historical artefact. It's a wonderful thing. And the narrative of Price's life combined with those notes 
is really meaningful, but actually the notes by themselves are less inspiring. Yeah, um, okay. Uh, they don't hit me quite in the same way. But uh, it's very hard to unpick whether we just listen to the notes. You know, do we listen to Beethoven's music in a different way, knowing that he's deaf? Do we forever, you know, we always inscribe bits of composer's biography into the piece, and that plays into our our listening experience. It does. It does. De- um, definitely does for me. But. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing to say on it is that this piece would form a really strong addition to the playing canon of any Austro-Germanic orchestra. I think they could pick up this musical language really fast. As we heard earlier, they're not playing a great deal of music by women composers. This would be a really good one. It would also be a good one for a youth orchestra, you know? Okay. Because it's not that challenging technically, or at least to my ear. Nothing is total fireworks. It would be very playable. There's really good melodies in there. It would be a really good one to hear something like the National Youth Orchestra playing. Absolutely, yeah. Well, let's hope that the 2018 Backtrack statistics aren't an indication of what will happen this year and and the years following in terms of programming. Well, Alex Ross has already had an influence on what the Chicago Symphony Orchestra are playing by telling them that they need to include more women. Yeah, told them off in a tweet. Maybe, you know, there'll be greater pressure placed on other orchestras as well. From us talking about it. Maybe from us, Tim. This is where it starts. (laughs) So before you hear from us again, here are a few things that we think you should be catching up with if you have the opportunity. The first being Soundstate, which is a brand new contemporary classical music festival hosted by the South Bank's Royal Festival Hall. It's from the 16th to the 20th, and it's going to be five nights of cross-boundary sounds and cutting-edge music. That was nice. Thank Quotation you. voice. Yeah, good. thank you very much. It's, it's really exciting. They've got workshops, they've got artist bars where you can go and chat to the artists and they've got some incredible orchestras and conductors and performers. They've got the London Philharmonic, the Philharmonia, the London Sinfonietta, the Aurora Orchestra, Claire Chase, the flautist, Dubun, the composer from Shanghai, Rebecca Saunders, Marin Alsop. I'm going to be watching Marin Alsop conduct the London Philharmonic. Anders Hilborg, a Swedish composer, and Helen Grime, the English composer. All the big hitters. All the big hitters. And you. And me, and I'm going to... Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So it's really exciting, really good opportunity for contemporary classical music. Nice. On the 17th, there are concerts anywhere in the country. So if you're not London-based, this is a good one for you. BBC Scottish are playing in Glasgow City Hall. They are playing one of their own, Macmillan's Trombone Concerto, uh, with the Dutch-sounding Jorgen van der Reichen, with Martin Brabins conducting, uh, in Liverpool... The Liverpool Phil are playing the Weinberg Cello Concerto, which I actually heard on a university open day about 10 years ago. Years ago. Good? I have no idea. It was really arresting. Very powerful. Kind of like Shostakovich with a few more tears. It was beautiful. And then, actually, if you're back in London, the 16 can entertain you by singing Purcell all night. So if you enjoyed our Queen Anne stuff, then that's mm. uh, that's one for you. That's a Wigmore Hall, isn't it? Yep. The BBC National Orchestra Wales are playing Cardiff on the 18th. That's Marla 10 with Thomas Sondergaard. The Ulster Orchestra playing in Belfast, Brahms' second piano concerto. The RTE Orchestra are playing in Dublin. It's actually the same programme. They're playing the Brahms' second piano concerto as well, but with Bagris. Fierce competition. Fierce competition, but with Barry Douglas playing piano under Jamie Martin. The 19th, for some more non-Londoners, Opera North are in Leeds, putting on the Magic Flute. Bridgewater Hall, you've got the Firebird with uh, BBC Phil and Ben Jernan. And if you happen to be in Cambridge, 
go and watch the entire university turn out to put on the War Requiem. Mm. That should be a good one. It's, it's a lot of the different choirs and then the university orchestra. Ah, oh, they're fab. Bits and pieces, really and they will top. be fab. And then on the 20th at the South Bank, there's an all-English programme of Elgar von Williams Britain, and that's with the Philomonia de Martin Brabens, so check that out. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. If you'd like to get in touch with us, then feel free to follow us on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook at ClassicalPod, or our email is theclassicalmusicpod at gmail.com. And if you have enjoyed today, then please do give us a review on iTunes or however you've come across our pod today. It really helps us to develop it and build in extra nice things for you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more of the same. I'm a doctor, not a performer. I don't have time for such nonsense.